The following podcast is intended for general information and entertainment purposes only. It should not be substituted for professional medical or psychological advice. Before beginning or changing a treatment plan, please consult your local healthcare professional. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a bonus episode of Biopsychosocial. I'm Kayla, and I am joined today by a very special guest, my sister, Alexis. You don't have to laugh when you're introducing me. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And you're known by your greatest hits, such as, what do you, what do, you do? Being a mom of a four- and five-year-old. Um, I work in higher education, so I'll be bringing a little bit of a different flavor to the podcast yes. today. Um, I work in instructional design and I'm a professor on campus. Excelente. Yeah, fun times. Yes, it is. A, it's a fun time to be a teacher, I can imagine. Yes. I hope everyone is doing okay and staying well and staying sane. How as are, best you can. How are you staying sane? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> With two children at home. I'm, uh, I've been eating a lot. And I've been having alcoholic beverages at night. Oh, yeah. My God. Yeah. That's dangerous, though, for the alcoholics out there. So don't drink if you're an alcoholic, please. <laughs> no. But if you're a mom, wine is okay. <laughs> a little bit of wine. Yeah. <laughs> or tequila, whatever your choice is. Whatever you want to do. So also, for those of you who couldn't tell me and Jordan's voice is apart, good luck. Yeah. And God bless, because we sound pretty much the same. We both sound like our mom. Yes, Almost exactly. Karen. Yes, Karen. All right. So I had said on a previous episode that um, I, Jordan and I record, recorded this and another episode of mine twice, and both times my computer ate the episode. And I'm pretty sure she was, like, really tired of hearing the same thing over and over and over. So I'm, I'm interested to see what you think about these topics okay. <laughs> that we're going to talk about. Um, because she was pretty bored. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to talk about is the McDonald triad, which I'm sure you're familiar with because you're a fan of true crime. Yeah. So it's mentioned in pretty much every TV show, book, movie, or podcast about true crime. So what is it? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I want you to imagine a triangle. Got and it. Each corner is a different problematic behavior. <laughs> intentional fire setting on one corner, bedwetting after the age of 12 on another corner, and deliberate cruelty to or killing of animals on the last. Are you, do you have this in your brain? Yes. Okay. Thankfully, I've been a kindergarten teacher this week as well, so shapes are in my brain. <laughs> I heard that Hunter asked mom if she knew what a triangle was. Um, he asked me many questions about things <laughs> like that. Yes. She was making him a sandwich and he said, can you please cut it into triangles? Do you know what a triangle is, Nana? I'm pretty sure she does. So I wrote in my notes, they're in a triangle because they're connected. So the pop psychology of this, because I feel like it is pop psychology, um, is that the presence of all three of these behaviors in childhood is a strong predictor of violent behavior. One out of three typically exists as its own diagnosis. So as, as we've spoken about previously on this podcast, enuresis, which is the, the diagnostic term for bedwetting, 
uh, for example, can be an indicator of any number of things from pediatric diabetes to sexual trauma and a whole bunch of things in between. So all of these, all three of these behaviors are obviously indicative of an issue that needs addressing. I mean, if you have your child like intentionally setting fire to things or like killing kittens, you obviously want that addressed. I mean, likely that's probably what we would do. Yes. So you've probably heard this mentioned in relation to serial killers. Yes. I just talked to you about this recently when there was a situation that I wanted to ask you about with a child that I knew that might be a serial killer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that child is doing any of these things. (laughs) Well, I don't know if they're wetting the bed, but, but are these things a good predictor of violent behavior? Well, the answer is no. (laughs) So we can pack it. Thanks for answering that burning question. (laughs) That's it. Podcast is over. So the, the trait of fire setting in adolescence was first identified by Helen Yarnell, medical doctor in 1940. So where did the McDonald triad originate? So I'm I'm pronouncing it McDonald's because it's spelled McDonald, not like McDonald's where you get your Big Mac. Or as I get usually like a, a McDouble. That's my menu order. Um, we get a lot of chicken nuggets. <laughs> <laughs> um, so John Marshall McDonald was born in 1920 in Dunedin, New Zealand. He was a psychiatrist, meaning that he was a medical doctor who specialized in psychiatry and a researcher. He developed the theory of the triad after clinical observation in his work with violent offenders. So call it a hunch. His paper in the American Journal of Psychiatry that first proposed this idea was called The Threat to Kill and was published in 1963, which was 57 years ago. Thank you for clarifying that. (laughs) Well, it's important because... First of all, research that's older than like 10 years is usually considered obsolete in our field. Because think about it, we're learning and discovering new things every day with science. Mm -hmm. So McDonald uh, compared 48 patients that he deemed psychotic, whatever the criteria was at the time. So we were still working with, I believe, the first edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the DSM, against 52 patients who were non-psychotic. So the sample was admitted to Colorado, a Colorado hospital, some by court order and others voluntarily. There were men and women fairly evenly, and they had made a threat to cause physical harm, either seriously or in jest. So like imagine you're in line to get your toilet paper <laughs> and okay. so somebody buys all of it before you can get to it. And you're like, I'm going to flipping kill you. In this instance, you would be sent to a psychotic hospital, pretty much, or like a a mental hospital. There would be lots of people in mental hospitals right now. That was the scenario. Yes. So he noted that all but 10 were diagnosed schizophrenic. 35 had paranoid delusions. And in the non-psychotic patients, they had a character disorder diagnosis, which I assume means like a personality disorder. Um, In 26 patients, threats were fueled by substance abuse. Like, obviously, I mean... Angry drunks. To give you an idea of how much diagnoses have changed since the 60s in America, at the same time MacDonald published this paper, homosexuality was still considered a sociopathic trait. So I think that's what's so, not upsetting, it's not like I rage about it or anything, but that's, that's what I cringe about when people bring this up in like podcasts and stuff is that like, this research comes from a time when if you were gay, you were considered to have like a... Disorder, you know, same time period. Many patients had weapons at their disposal, uh, not in the hospital. 
Okay. But, like, at home. It wasn't a weapons hospital? No. Okay, good. <laughs> no, they took, they had, like, their own armory where they stored them, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> so it, that included vicious dogs. So one patient trained his boxers to fight to the death and had once thrown his own child's pet kitten to these dogs for them to kill. Oh, my God. I can't. So obviously there was something wrong with this individual. I mean, clearly. Interestingly, interestingly, many of these people expressed disdain for violence on TV, warfare, and a few had given up hunting because of their ability to cope with causing harm to another living thing. And they were from all sorts of professions, including nurses. So maybe Jordan would have been in this um, hospital. I mean, she's not here, so let's talk smack on her. Yeah, let's talk smack. So the people that were threatened mostly were typically close family members, like spouses or children. Over approximately 15 months, a little more than 1,500 patients were admitted specifically for making homicidal threats. One later killed intentionally, two accidentally. All were known to be paranoid. McDonald specifically leaves a comment at the end of his paper stating that the study did not provide criteria for the prediction of homicide. The writer himself, from clinical experience in examining over 100 persons who committed homicide, has the clinical impression that a history of great parental brutality, extreme maternal seduction, whatever that means, Mm -hmm. or the triad, are unfavorable prognostic factors in those who threaten homicide. Paranoid delusions with very great anger denote danger, yet many patients with paranoid delusions do not kill. So when we're talking paranoid delusions, we're thinking like usually people with some sort of psychotic disorder. So it could be schizophrenia. It could be like a psychotic disorder in its own diagnosis. It could be bipolar disorder. Some people have psychotic symptoms when they have a lot of trauma. And paranoia, obviously, is like, oh, my God, they're out to get me, you know. But it could be also something like uh, I was watching TV the other day and the newscaster was speaking to me, telling me that, you know, you're people are coronavirus. Yeah. They, yeah. Well, there's probably, you know, I guess everyone's paranoid. right? Yeah. So let's talk about what makes for a solid experiment. I know that's what you've always wanted to talk to me. About. The burning question deep inside. Another myself. one. Yeah, wow, this mm-hmm. is OK. My school, my school of psychology is open for business folks. If you want to send your kids to me, please don't send your kids to me. <laughs> I was going to say, you're not, you don't want kids around you. (laughs) No. So it's boring, but necessary, but it can be helpful to you before undergoing treatment of any kind. I was thinking about getting, I think they're literally called happy lamps, but they're like, um, they're meant to mimic like the sunlight. So they're really good for treating seasonal affective disorder. And everybody gets the winter blues, even if they're not, you know, diagnosed with depression, but it seemed kind of woo woo to me. So I was like, I'm going to be a nerd and look up some actual research articles on this. And I read through them and found that there's evidence that they um, help people with very mild seasonal affective disorder. I mean, obviously, if you're very deeply depressed, a lamp isn't going to help. But yeah, no, I found that the treatment can be effective. So um, that that's an instance where research helped me. So first, observational research isn't necessarily the best because you have to quantify it in order to perform statistical analyses. So you'd have to quantify things like clothing, speech, and mood, which can be subjective. So if you think someone's angry, maybe I think they're anxious, something like that. Uh, You want your research to be reliable, meaning that results could be duplicated over and over, which didn't happen with a study on vaccines causing autism. Just thought I would say that. 
and you want it to be valid, meaning that it accurately measures what it is meant to measure. It's best to randomize subjects so that way you can generalize your findings to the population as a whole. So, for example, you might choose random students at a university in the Northwest, one in the Northeast, one in the Midwest, and one in the South. And then you can generalize more accurately to all American university students than if you looked at one university in the Northeast. Are you following me? Yes. It's a lot of, I'm spitting a lot of information. A lot of things, but yes, I'm following. So think about the people who call you from the Quinnipiac polling places. It's random, but it comes from a database. Or like when you get called for uh, jury duty, it's kind of the same thing. When it's a random, randomized assignment, everybody has like an equal opportunity to be a participant. You want your results to be statistically significant, meaning that all of your complicated math can show that there is a strong relationship between variable A and variable B. So stronger than the control group, for example. McDonald did not at all believe that his kind of casual research had any predictive value and recognized that it had many limitations. He thought that his findings were interesting and worth sharing, and they were. Yeah. Despite this, many people have gone on to formally test his hypothesis, and none have been able to conclude any worthwhile results. Except true crime aficionados. Yes, Yes, that's it. In research that found evidence of a relationship between the traits and violent behavior, the sample size was very small and poorly designed. So if you're researching like five people, you can't really generalize that to everybody because that's probably specific to those five people. In research that had larger groups and better controls, results that supported McDonald's hypothesis could not be found. Robert Robert Russler, John Douglas, and Dr. Ann Burgess, a.k.a. the cast of Mindhunter, formed the behavioral science unit of the FBI and worked for Netflix. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) To create a way to profile violent offenders. So they believed in the McDonald's triad triad in a a hardcore way, but their research was also very flawed with too, too few subjects and no effort to create randomized scientific design. So as you know, they went and researched serial killers who had already or they interviewed they didn't even research they interviewed serial killers who had already committed crimes so obviously it wasn't randomized and it was also a lot of information that had would have had to be quantified because it was just an interview what is this thing that i keep hitting i don't know we're we're sitting at an air hockey table which is also where i sit when i'm at jordan's house so this is uh called biopsycho air hockey social (laughs) i feel very at home at this air hockey table uh, meta-analysis done by Leary et al. in 2017, and a meta-analysis is just kind of like a comparison of a whole bunch of research, found statistical sig- significance between traits in the triad and parental, physical, and psychological abuse, particularly fire setting and bedwetting. So this is based on data on 280 serial killers as found in the Radford slash Florida Gulf Coast University Serial Killer Database. Don't get your hopes up about being able to access that yourself, I'm sure. No I was just going to say, that's my favorite database. I know. To that, would be, from. that would be so interesting to be able to look at it, but I'm sure we can't. No. Essentially, one has to look out for toxic relationships with parents as a predictor of violence, which makes sense. And even if you are looking at, I think I read somewhere once that, um, what the hell is his name? The Night Stalker. What was his name? <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't you know this? Oh I, I feel like I should. Starts with an R, maybe? <laughs> yes, it does. Richard Ramirez. Okay. I knew it was an R. So if you look at, for example, I think I remember reading something about Richard Ramirez having this pretty 
tumultuous relationship with his mom. And um, I feel like I read somewhere once that she like sold him for a pitcher of beer or something like that. There are days where I might do that with my children. <laughs> Just kidding. I would, um, never, I would never sell my kids. I don't want your listeners to Don't call DCF, I'm... please. No, please. Somebody should have called DCF on Richard yeah. Ramirez's parents. But anyways, so that makes sense. I mean, if you look at a lot of serial killers, they have pretty weird relationships with their parents. Eddie Gain, I mean, dug up his mother's corpse and just, like, put it in his basement. So, I mean, there you go. Didn't Ed Kemper, like, do things with his mother once he killed her, too? Yeah, so he decapitated her. He put her voice box, whatever that's called, in the garbage disposal um, because she he hated the way that he she, like, nagged at him. Yeah, so... Very symbolic, but very disturbing. Yeah, because they had a really a bad relationship. They had a fantastic relationship. Yes. He also killed both of his grandparents. Yeah. Way before he killed anyone else. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> so many, obviously, many, many, many people experience abuse, neglect, and other trauma at the hands of their parents and do not end up serial killers or criminals at all. So it, it's almost like an internal versus external blame. So if... Children who turn the blame internally probably take it out on themselves. They might become suicidal. They might self-harm. Children who put the blame externally and express their anger externally might hurt other people. So I don't don't know if you've ever seen the documentary Child of Rage. No. Well, you should watch. I mean, it it might be hard as a parent to watch, but it's it's fascinating. So it's this little girl who's maybe definitely less than 10 years old. I'm not sure exactly how old she is. But she's adopted, and she was taken away from her parents because her father sexually abused her. He raped her when she was very little. And she remembered that well enough to know that it made her very angry, and she tried to kill her little brother by smothering him. And she says this very, like, nonchalantly and matter-of-factly in the interview, and it's so creepy. They're like, oh, what did you do to your brother? And she's like, I tried to kill him. (laughs) But anyway. That's an example of how that rage, that anger is expressed um, because children don't have any other way to express it. Anyways, I'm not going to get too far into that either. But she, I'll have you know, leads a very productive life now. She got a lot of therapy. She's doing fine. Good for her. Uh, there has been speculation in the true crime community that there is a relationship between traumatic brain injury and violent behavior. So this has more credence. There was research done on Vietnam veterans who received traumatic brain injury during the war. So lesions on the primitive areas of the brain, such as the frontal lobe, are a predictor of violent behavior, such that an individual may regress to more primitive means of problem-solving or conflict resolution, such as aggression or violence, which makes sense. The frontal lobe, by the way, is in the front of your brain. Thank you for pointing to your head and showing me where that was. I appreciate <laughs> it's right, right behind your forehead bone. That's what it's called, actually, scientifically, your forehead bone. <laughs> yes. So the McDonald triad and the brain lesion thingy are hypotheses. They're not necessarily tested and true predictors of violence. But I don't think it's a really big deal to talk about them as long as you remember that it's a hypothesis with acknowledgement that it's not fact and especially in casual talk about true crime. Like, whatever. Yeah. Um, I could see it being harmful maybe in clinical work or if someone were chosen for a jury who believes this to be true. 
So it's hard to predict violent behavior because it requires researching people who have already committed violent crimes, and that can become a sticky situation for many reasons. One of them, as you know, many sociopathic people are uh, very hyperbolic. They like to exaggerate. And they're very good at lying and manipulating others. So sometimes they even take credit for crimes that they didn't commit just because they want the notoriety. So they're not very good historians. However, the diagnoses of conduct disorder in youth and antisocial personality disorder in adulthood often include these traits, but they usually do not exist in isolation. And one can be diagnosed with either of these without ever causing physical harm to another living being. So the key with these diagnoses is the lack of regard for societal norms. Like, I know it's both morally wrong and illegal to steal, but I don't care and it makes me happy. And things like callousness or lack of empathy, lack of guilt or remorse, and lack of emotion are specifiers, meaning that the diagnosis can be given without their presence. So, yeah. So that's where we see those traits show up in, like, actual diagnosis. And for what it's worth, so... Where do you stand on the difference between psychopath and sociopath? I I really don't know. I kind of <laughs> like in my mind, I'm not like trained in psychology. People, you don't like, have to be. I mean, people talk about it very casually. But like, like to me, in my mind, they're like melded as one. Like it's like a term that people just use interchangeably. You know? Yeah, and I mean that's my stance on it too because. Obviously, we only have the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. There's not like a psychopath diagnosis. I think it's kind of like um, sensationalism almost. But the last time Jordan and I recorded this, she made a really good point that it's almost like sociopaths are grounded in reality still. So they're, they're egotistical and they're manipulative and they're potentially dangerous, but they're grounded in reality where it's almost like psychopaths are not. So you have that, like McDonald was talking about paranoia. So you have that sense of paranoia. Maybe there's some like hallucinations or whatever going on for a psychopath where they're not as grounded in reality. And that almost makes them scarier. Yeah. Because they live in like a fantasy world kind of. Where they don't, they're, well, I guess neither of those People are really thinking about consequences, but they're definitely not thinking no. about consequences. But I almost think, like, I would think of Ted Bundy as a sociopath and Richard Ramirez as a psychopath. Okay. And mm-hmm. that's that's my story, and I'm sticking my to My pal Ted. God, I'm so over Ted Bundy. I know. Everything is Ted Bundy right now. I know. There's, like, there's like a new documentary that's, like, with his wife, girlfriend, whatever she was, yes. the woman that he was with, and the daughter. Like, come on. Give it up. I know. I'm over it. We know everything we need to know about Ted Exa- Bundy. I've seen everything about Ted Bundy and, and Zac Efron. I mean, Zac Efron. <laughs> and Rule already did all of this, folks. And they're like, done that, people. You could have just read the book. Yeah. It's real long, though, so a lot of people want to read it. <laughs> um, well, you know what? Now they have a lot of time to read it. Or, like, maybe you could go to your local library like I do and get audiobooks. Yes. And be a 100-year-old woman and listen to books on tape. That's all. That's not, you know what? I, when I, my commute was an hour, I would always listen to audiobooks yeah. because it would take me like three days to get through like Lord of the Rings <laughs> because my commute was so long. I mean, maybe more than three days, but yeah. <laughs> what was I going to say? So I'm going to ask you a random question, but first I have to think of a random question. Okay. Oh, I feel like I'm on Jeopardy. Da, 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 da. <laughs> What is the first thing you're going to do once this, like, self-isolation quarantine thing is over? Go to Target. <laughs> that was a really quick answer. So, 
My thing, this and like I feel like moms can feel me on this one. Probably. Like if there's ever a time when my husband is like, I'm gonna take the kids for a couple hours, you go do whatever you need to mm-hmm. do. I always go to Target because there's <laughs> something really calming about just being able to like browse the clearance racks at Target and not have a child tugging yes, at you or whining. And our Target has a Starbucks. So you like you go get your like mm-hmm. venti refresher. And sip on it while you go through the aisles. Jones in for that right now. I know. It's, it's retail therapy, even if you don't buy anything. Yeah. Yeah. We're all missing that right now. Well, I mean, I guess you could still shop online. Pretty much every store I look at has, like, huge sales. And oh, yeah. Like, begging me to buy things from I them. I get, like, 150 emails a day. Like, hey, did you see that we're doing this <laughs> sale? Did you need shoes? And I'm Big like, Lots literally keeps emailing me and being like, hey, where did you go? <laughs> like, that's what one of the emails said. I was like, like, where do you think I am? I'm at my house. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere right now. Like, I'm wearing my pajamas every day. Don't need no new shoes or like, like nope. Big Lots is sending emails about like, get ready for the summer. I'm I like, I, what? No, we're all going to be wearing like a full containment suits or whatever they're called. Hazmat suits, like jumping into the pool this summer. Yeah. When you have the thought of coronavirus, as my child keeps calling yes. it. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. She doesn't, they don't understand. Kids don't no, understand. They don't. That's okay, though. It's kind of like, I kind of like to look at it through their eyes, though. Uh-huh. Because, like, it's not so, like, I'm not getting as, they're not getting as paranoid, you know? Yeah, of course. Like, I think I told you this the other day, like, my six-year-old's biggest thing is, do you think the Easter Bunny will still come, or is he going to get coronavirus? Right. To which I was like, he's going to come if mama can get to Target (laughs) (laughs) or buy some stuff online. I know. I was going to go to Five Below because I have like absolutely everything to make them Easter baskets. And literally when I went with my friend Kim, I was like, oh, I have time, right? She was like, yeah, you have time. You don't have time. I don't now. I can't go because they're closed. (laughs) Yeah. Everything's closed. We're not closed. I kind of wanted to do a PSA that... um. So Connecticut is in a shelter in place. Uh, Our governor did a shelter in place order except for um, essential workers. And I'm considered an essential worker because I work in community mental health. And I think the thing that's most worrisome for me right now is that there's going to be a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression coming out of this because people have to isolate. They're worried about losing their jobs. There There are still therapists that are available if you're looking for a therapist The private practitioners that I know of are still doing their best to work with people um, remotely. So HIPAA was scaled back. So now we can call people and we can do like, help. we can talk to you through Skype or FaceTime, like whatever is available. We're getting very creative. Um, But please don't think that you have to go through it alone or that you can't go to therapy or it's too late for you to find a therapist because that's not true. And I'm sure even if you lost your insurance, there are therapists who are willing to work with you on a a sliding scale or something like that. I am like a hair away from being licensed in Connecticut. And if I was licensed, I would probably try and offer at least some pro bono services because it's really needed and Mm -hmm. it could potentially save lives but yeah let me get off my soapbox (laughs) but even like i've seen a lot of people doing like zoom meetings with their friends and like having a glass of wine together and like happy hour on zoom or whatever Mm -hmm. but just like staying connected is really important i think right now um we have like a group text with our family Mm -hmm. that like 
we usually do family dinner once a month and family dinner got canceled. Right. So like everybody's sending texts and pictures and stuff. So it's just, I think it's just important to stay right. connected. I keep using the terms with my clients unprecedented because nobody knows what's to, what to do in this situation. No. And creative. So we have to get really creative with how we stay connected to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was telling someone that I was even thinking of starting like, oh my God, a Twitch channel or some sort of like live streaming service so that not so that people can like watch me play games because nobody wants to see that. But um, so that we can play games together or we can watch movies together, which I know you can do with other services. But again, you have to be creative. Um, but we're so lucky also to live in a day and age where you can do that. Yeah. So, so like, imagine if this happened, like, heaven forbid, before the interwebs. I and, well, I mean, the you know, Spanish flu in 1918. Like, what did people do? Like, stay inside. Yeah. And, and like, you weren't, I mean, that's almost a good thing because you're not, like, bombarded with all that news that, yes. like, you know, everybody's saying in Italy 700 people yes. a day are yeah. dying and, like, hearing all that, it's kind of, like, making you feel it's a little bit paranoid. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, you're be, you're able to connect on your computer or your phone or yeah. whatever. Um, yeah. Also only check the news like in the morning and in the evening. Don't like, and don't rely on Twitter or anything else or especially not Facebook for your news because you don't know how accurate that is. And that's probably going to scare you more than it needs to. Yeah. We talk about that in my first, I teach a first year experience Mm -hmm. class and we talk about reliable sources a lot. And it's amazing to me that some of my students think that like, these crazy websites like Facebook are like reliable places to get information. Right. Like, no, it's not. Like, right. both reliable sources. Right. I feel like it's like really young kids and then like our parents. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, mom, that's that's a hoax, mom. Yeah. Mom, if you send that out to 400 people, you're not going to get a free iPad or whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you liked this little bonus episode. A little. A little special just for you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have anything else that you need people to know? <laughs> I don't think so. There's nothing deep inside that I need to share with anyone. Just stay connected and reach out to people if you need anything. And yes. this is these are like trying times right now. So yeah. listen to this podcast on <laughs> repeat if you're really feeling lonely. Yeah. I mean, we're all in this ship boat together so uh, i thought you said ship boat and i was like what kind of a boat are you on I, that's what i said it's oh. ship boat oh <laughs> <laughs> it's le- it's legit like a boat made out of shit right yeah, now this is true so we're all we're i know people will keep saying that and it sounds cliche but we really are all in this together so lean on other people for support check on your friends especially the quiet mm-hmm. ones or even especially the happy ones i guess yeah check on um, your grandma Check on your grandma, but don't go to visit her. No, don't go see her. Make Call her, her. Make her figure out FaceTime. Call her. I saw um, one of my friends post something on Instagram the other day that she brought her sons to see their great grandma and they made signs for her and like mm-hmm. stood outside of her window Aww. at her house and they were like talking to her through the window and it was that's really cute. cute. That's so like, I, if you can do that, do that. Yeah, that's what I told mom we would have to do. We could touch hands through our, the glass of their window. <laughs> My kids FaceTime mom, so that's how they get their fill. All right, guys. Um, Well, stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane, stay away from old people. Make make good choices, people. Make good choices. We love you. You're beautiful. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you.